Welcome, everyone, to the Last Aid Station podcast here on Mountain Bike Radio. My name is Mark Stover. I'm your host for the Last Aid Station. We hope we are becoming your source of information, results, and highlights of the endurance off-road community, whether that be mountain biking, uh, ultras, bike pack races, gravel races even in some cases. Um, this is our third episode. We have a big one planned for today. We have several interviews that will hopefully enlighten and lighten things up a little bit on our race results, including Eddie O'Day, fresh off his win in the Hurricane 300, Brendan Collier, coordinator of the Stagecoach 400, who hopefully will give you some insight into that ride and the results, as well as a quick clip from Jonathan Davis regarding the recent True Grit Epic, where he finished fifth. Uh, we're glad to have you along, and thank you for tuning in again, or if this is your first time, welcome. We hope everyone is finally getting a chance to dig themselves out of the snow and ice that seems to be through the majority of the U.S., um, certainly a large amount of precipitation additionally. Um, if you're from the northwest, northeast Midwest, um, you've been dealing with quite a bit of snow and ice, and we hope you're finally getting a chance to put some wheels on dirt, wheels on road, um, and at least get some training outside in the environment. Um, and we're hopefully hoping that you are really getting your 2014 season under the underway here um, in the U.S. and North America. Uh, we hope you also check back during the season as the season really kicks off now and we hope we you also check some of the other cool podcasts here on mountain bike radio uh, whether you're looking for stuff on nutrition or training um, gravel racing bike pack racing fat bike racing women in racing um, or even some of the more social aspects of uh, cycling whether you're following along with the drunk cyclist show um, which is kind of like an extension of their web blog presence there, um, the Big Livers podcast, which focuses on that equilibrium between beer and bikes, or that gang over at Just Riding Along. Always a guilty pleasure to follow them along uh, with their offbeat and random conversations from very unique points of view um, that usually, and I say that again, usually uh, focus around bikes and the off-road community. So if you ride off-road, there's something here for everyone on Mountain Bike Radio, and that's guaranteed. A um, couple of off-the-road, off-the-wall topics here as we really get started into the show. Um, just a couple things that I've noticed over the past week or so. Um, happened to be in Walmart buying some grass seed uh, and walked past the toy bicycle uh, areas there. Um, Walmart is now advertising that they are selling fat bikes available April 1st. Um, again, let that sink in. Walmart is selling fat bikes. Um, a quick uh, look and research into what they will be selling. They will be selling them in two different sizes. Um, a 20 inch size for those grommet racers and fat bike riders. Um, in a one by seven gearing combination, um, uh, for your child fat bikers, I guess. Uh, the interesting thing about the child fat bike is that it comes with slick tires. Um, and then on the adult side, um, uh, 
using uh, the 26-inch fat bike, which I hadn't seen before. Uh, anyhow, using a... Um, but it only comes in a single speed on the adult side. Um, and luckily, that single speed does have a chain guard. So interesting to see that Walmart feels that there's enough money to be made that they're going to market fat bikes. Um, but interestingly enough, they don't feel there's enough of an interest for them to actually get somebody involved who would understand what those fat bikes were. Um, again, I understand Walmart isn't the place that people that are looking to buy a real fat bike or any kind of fat bike would normally shop. But it's interesting to see that they will be available in the stores. To me, more shocking than when they started selling uh, fixed gear cruisers three or four or five years ago or whenever they did that. So very interesting to say the least. Um, but anyhow, that's, uh, that, <laughs> I was speechless when I saw it. Um, big news on a personal level. Um, just as we were preparing to record this podcast, I was notified, uh, here at the last aid station studios. And I mean that as spare bedroom office area. Um, I was notified of my official entry, from the waiting list into the starting roster of the Trans North Georgia 2014 race. Um, super excited, uh, while at the same time also crapping my pants with anxiety. Honestly, no idea what to expect, but really looking forward to um, a big adventure. Um, and that'll come toward the later part of the season. Uh, continuing on a personal front, I'm sure as we were talking about the weather, I'm sure many of you are dealing with quite a bit of weather, snow, ice, trying to figure out how to, how to get those rides in. Um, I've been registered for three races this year, two of which were postponed and rescheduled and then canceled. So total of five dates, um, so to speak, of races that um, were canceled for either snow, ice, rain, uh, what have you. So not a lot of luck on my end might be a good thing for me as uh, I'm coming off of a late season leg fracture last year was on crutches through November. And so as we all do, we always second guess our fitness going into those opening season races. I more so as I was off the bike for the better part of the fall uh, last year, nearly uh, three and a half months or so. So any additional time I get a chance to build some extra fitness, um, I'll, I'll take it um, a little bit on the rumor mill. Um, so the Twit World, Face Space, Intrawebs have been a buzz over the past uh, three or four days now um, of a new event in Telluride, Colorado. Um, the Telluride 100, very limited information on it. Um, most of the information actually comes from the race registration page. Um, and I can't remember where that is, um, but if you search Telluride 100, I'm sure you'll find it on the internet. Um, some of the interesting things that have come out, um, the rumors on this race, um, we do know that it's going to be a 100-mile race. We do know that it's 18,000 feet in elevation change. Um, interesting thing is that it's going to be, one, a USAC, USA Cycling permitted event, um, which is kind of interesting. Two, it only has a 75 uh, racer race cap, um, so it'll fill up quickly. Um, and it requires the uh, Colorado Search and Rescue card for backcountry. Um, so kind of an interesting combination of things there. Um, 
the course isn't really known. Um, quite a few people are trying to figure out what the course is. I don't live in Colorado. I don't really know m- much of that area, but they're trying to figure out how that course runs. The one big rumor about this race course is that it's being held um, in, in the ski resort there um, is that the rumor is, is that sometime during the race, racers will take a gondola to a, a second loop on the course. Um, not sure how that will all work out, but we here at the last aid station will be following along to see how that race goes. Sounds like an interesting concept, um, but we'll see how that how that race um, turns out as the uh, season rolls on. Jumping straight into race reports and results, uh, the Hurricane 300 in Florida is now in the books. Um, probably in the near future, we're going to need to change the name of that race or ride bike pack event to the Hurricane 350 is almost everybody's reporting distances well over 350 miles. They've had some course changes. They've added some additional trail to the course. But at the front, Eddie O'Day uh, pushed the pace early with Jason Morrell, um, began pulling away. Those two began, quickly separated themselves from the group, and then uh, Eddie was actually able to pull away 90 minutes in, um, actually gaining some separation in some single track sections and then riding solo the other 26 or 27 hours. Jason ended up with some minor medical issues, not sure if they were GI related or whatever, definitely feeling under the weather according to um, people on the course, was passed by Kevin Gretton and Mark Sackick while trying to recover, did recover somewhat um, and then was uh, unfortunately scratched from the race around the halfway point. Gretton and Sackick stayed closer for second and third. Um, Eddie ended up finishing the ride in one day, four hours or so and change. Um, got a chance to get in contact with Eddie earlier this week to discuss how he got involved in the uh, mountain bike community, the um, and how he evolved into ultra racing and bike pack racing and also got a chance to talk to him about um, his involvement as a race promoter. So take a listen to this interview. I'd like to introduce Eddie O'Day, whose list of job titles is even more impressive than his list of records that he set on his, as a pro mountain bike athlete across everything from uh, classic cross country to 24-hour racing to 100-mile uh, races all the way up to now uh, going into the bike pack world. Um, so that list not only would include his accomplishments as an athlete, but also everything um, behind the scenes. Um, he's, he's done everything from being, besides being the pro athlete, coaching, race promoter, and we're not talking just little small little races. He's been, done some national calendar races. Um, cycling studio owner with uh, 55.9, um, specializing in fittings and, and technique type uh, scenarios. He's, uh, he is now part, he's part of the uh, committee, the founding committee for the Georgia High School Cycling League, giving back to the community in that way. And we'll, talk, we'll get a chance to talk about what, what that's going to um, be doing down in his neck of the woods. Um, and then on his bike, like I said before, everything from 24-hour wins, which he seemed to specialize in, um, top spots in national-level endurance events, uh, former member of Tokyo Gurgon, uh, now making quite a name for himself across the community of bike pack racing. Um, glad to have you on, Eddie. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be an exciting little interview. Um, well, thanks for that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it seems like the, the people that make the biggest um, 
name for themselves across the mountain biking and um, are the ones that, that give back to the community. And you've certainly done that, um, really getting, I mean, putting on, um, I remember when you were putting on Burn 24 up here in North yeah, Carolina. Um, <laughs> it goes back. Um, you were still doing, uh, I mean, uh, until recently, uh, Fool's Gold, uh, Southern Cross. I mean, those, those aren't little tiny uh, local local events at the city park. I mean, you're putting on some big national events and uh, really giving back, and that's a really cool thing. Um, so um, you've, you have kind of run the gamut of racing, really. Um, you've come from, uh, we were talking before, you, you've came from a traditional cross-country background. So how did you even get started mountain biking? Um, what was your background before that, and how did you transition to everything? Uh, I was a, a non-athlete uh, when before I, I picked up a bike, and uh, I was actually um, I was working as a, a network cable installer, you know, like phone cables and stuff in, in commercial buildings, and uh, traveling all over. And I, I was in eastern Pennsylvania for the summer, and just bored of everything else I was doing, which was you know mostly uh, you know going to a bar and watching football on the weekend or something. And, uh, went and bought a mountain bike and just started exploring. And this, this was late nineties. So it wasn't like I had, uh, access to trail information on my phone. You know, you really had to go out and search for this stuff and, and just, just explore. And so that, that's kind of how it got started. Um, uh, with a few years after that, I found myself down in Florida thinking mountain biking would, uh, I'd put that away and find something else to do. But, uh, there was a really robust, uh, mountain bike community down there. And, uh, I just got involved with that very quickly, um, uh, both, uh, trail advocacy and, and the racing scene. And, um, and they just really nurtured that along and, and there's so many opportunities to race and, and, and I was having a blast with it. So, uh, I caught the bug and it started with cross country races and I very quickly learned the longer the race was, the better shot I had at winning it. And, uh, so I progressed to, uh, you know, like six and 12 hour races and then, 24 hour races and, and now longer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you, did you, did you consciously like search out the longer races, um, early or did you, you know, there seems to be a lot of intimidation, you know, about three, maybe three years into my, my racing that I, it, it finally occurred to me as, you know, and at that point it's, you know, like, if it was over three hours, I've got a really good chance. I, it wasn't like I need to go sleep deprivation to to win. It just, um, you know, some of the cross country races, um, with a promoter that, uh, down in Florida gone riding, they would, they would take a vote on the, the starting line. Um, you know, do you guys want to do uh, three or four laps today? And of course I'm always, you know, raising my hand for four. Everybody else wants shorter. <laughs> and, uh, when, when it would, would go longer, I, I'd, you know, be able to gain spots. I was never a great cross country racer. Um, uh, it, it, not at the, the pro level. Uh, I just don't have the motor for it, but, uh, certainly if it, it went longer. So that, that led me to, you know, let's try out a 12 hour race, a lap race and see how that goes. And I immediately, and that first race I did, I led for 11 hours and unfortunately fell apart in the last hour to finish second. But it's like, I, you know, I like getting on the podium. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do what I'm good at. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You had, um, you had quite the run of, um, 24 hour racing there for a while. Um, of course, you know, that, I guess that form is kind of, 
Um, yeah, it's all but gone it's at this all point. But gone, yeah. <laughs> even, even USA Cycling is, you know, what they like, drop nationals they drop now. Nationals this year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, uh, in favor of putting on an enduro event, um, but uh, it just seems. It seems the Southwest seems to be the only place it really has still have a you know pretty decent twenty four hour scene and still there, there is one one coming up here in the South right. uh, over in Alabama but yeah, uh, yeah the the long lasting ones um, have gone away even the burn at oh, the, yeah. you know, close to a ten year run and uh, this uh, I think last year was the last one yeah which was yeah. Uh, yeah it was a little sad to see I I always meant to go back and race it solo it just never happened <laughs> yeah so. Uh, this year, you've you've moved um, away from the team kind of aspect with uh, Topic, and are you are you just looking for independent sponsors now, just for you, or are you doing a team thing this year? How how is? Um, I'm not against being on another team. It's just uh, that opportunity didn't arise. I mean, there were so many teams reducing or folding last year. Right. Uh, really, the last two or three years um, that uh, when. Uh, my services were no longer needed at, at Topeak Ergon. I just you know, made some phone calls to uh, some connections that I had, and then the the siren opportunity was presented, and uh, um, that kind of came out of meeting uh, uh, Brandon right. uh, Collier out there at, at the Stagecoach last year, and uh, and so that it just you know just just sort of um, those opportunities arose. I wasn't looking for the same sort of level that I had with Topi Kurgan, both in the support they gave me and the time commitment I needed to give back. Um, so I was looking for a little bit less commitment that way so that I could focus more on, on my businesses and um, the high school cycling league that we got started here um, and not have to quite put so much effort into the, you know, promoting, uh, you know, a bunch of sponsors and, and all the events that go along with that. And um, so, yeah, I was looking for a little bit less, in, in that regard. Um, so, so two weekends ago, um, you, you headed south to Florida um, to an event that I think you've won before, correct? Um, yeah, so actually it was last weekend, but uh, um, yeah, the Hurricane 300. 300 um, yep. So three of us tied last year. Okay. Um, it was not, uh, yeah, <laughs> I had made some uh, execution mistakes last year and and was not able to uh, shake my friends. And thankfully, they didn't work too hard on trying to drop me when I was bonking at the end. Uh, um, but I, I'd for, I forgot my money. That was it's been a been a joke all along. Um, but I took off. I got about sixty miles in and realized I left my cash and credit card in the car. And so I had to survive on the calories that I had. Wow. And uh, barely barely did that. <laughs> but yeah, we we end up having to. Um have to save some of the stuff that you would have eaten early or did, were you, did you just went until you ran out? Um, yeah, so it occurred to me, I was like, you know what? I'll try to outrun my calories. If I just get the race done faster, I won't need as many calories. You know, that, that seemed logical at the time, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know how well that worked, but I mean, yeah. I, we did, we did end up setting a new course record and, um, but I definitely suffered through the last, uh, yeah, I don't know. 30, 40 miles. Uh, there's a lot of nodding off and, and waking up and, and seeing that the guys are, the other two guys are, you know, 20 yards up the road and sprint up there, catch up to them and immediately start nodding off again. Yeah. And, uh, 
I don't know how many times that happened in the last couple hours, but it was a little scary. Um, and thankfully, they yeah, they weren't really keen on trying to get rid of me either because I would have had to just stop and sleep because I couldn't navigate in that state. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the fact that you were with them was probably the only way you were still moving up the road. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So with the mistakes um, last year, um, you've learned quite a bit. And I'd imagine every single one of these bike pack races, it's it's a huge knowledge gain. Um, because yeah, there's absolutely. There's not a lot of information out there, and not only that, but you really have to learn your body. I mean, what um, some of the top guys out in the West do, um, that may not even apply to you because your body doesn't work like that. Um, so what what changes did you have this year going into the race and what was your plan? And then even better yet, were you able to follow it? Gotcha. <laughs> um, well, uh, my, my intention was to, to aim for the same time that we did last year, which was about 23 and a quarter hours. Right. And this year um, it was, if it was, I'm not mistaken, 40 or 50 miles longer. Yeah. They was, they were advertising about 30 miles longer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I figured with the, packing my money, uh, two days before just to be sure I didn't forget it. And, uh, and, and which allowed me to have some caffeine, which was the other big deal last year. <laughs> I didn't have any caffeine throughout the race. Um, you know, that I'd still be able to carry, I'd be able to carry a higher pace through the, the end of the race. Um, and, uh, so that was my hope. I'd, I'd go a lot faster. And the reality was it was 50 miles longer, not, not 30 miles. And, uh, and it was, it was a lot more sand, uh, this year. And that, that's the big challenge in Florida. It's obviously not the climbing. Um, I think it's 2,500 feet for that. Um, maybe it's closer to 3000, the way the course changed, um, for the, the entire route, 3000 feet of climbing. Um, so it's not obviously not big mountains. Um, uh, so it's the sand in, in, in comparison, you hit, hit that in your first 15 miles of trans North Georgia. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that's the opening climb. Yeah. (laughs) Um, the it's the sand and the wind that that usually play the biggest role um, as far as resistance goes and and the sand can just be brutal and and really a mind you know just really messes with your mind because it's just slow so slow going and so much energy to keep moving and uh you typically get a choice between like a sandy dirt road that's you know eight inches of sugar sand that you're just kind of plowing through and if you make the slightest bit of a turn your wheel's going to go sideways um, and then you're dead stop and start over again, or you get up on the side of that and it's more packed, but it's more, it's like tufts of grass and, and palmetto roots. And it's just really brutal on all your contact points. Um, you know, your hands and your butt just take a beating. Mm-hmm. And so you can carry more speed and get through it faster, but you take a beating doing it, or you sit in the sand and spend more energy and it takes longer, but it doesn't, you know, it's not beating your contact points up as much. So that's, unfortunately you get long stretches of that's, that's your choice. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's a mental, it really becomes a mental game trying to get through that, some of that stuff. Um, so I did not make my, my 23 hours. Uh, I wasn't even close. It ended, you know, race was longer. It was, uh, just over 20 or just under 28 hours that I did it in. Um, and, uh, but there, the other riders weren't, you know, I wasn't in a group like I was last year at the end. 
Yeah. Um, and we weren't, you know, I was able to back off a little bit. I didn't need to push myself quite as hard as I did last year either. Now how long, how long did the group, was there a group at the beginning or did it um, pretty quickly? Pretty quickly, uh, Jason Morell and I, uh, rolled off the front of, of the group, um, going, um, and of course you could choose which direction you wanted to go clockwise or counterclockwise. I think only six riders went, uh, clockwise. Um, so a big group going counterclockwise and Jason and I rolled off the group and I'd say about 20 ish miles in, um, I opened a small gap up on him and some tight twisty single track and, uh, and never saw anybody again. Um, you know, I, I, I saw him in passing where the trail kind of, you know, loops back on itself a few times and that part. And then afterwards, um, you know, I just, just set a little bit higher pace knowing that, that he wasn't quite as smooth through the, that single track just to, you know, try to make him work a little harder. And, uh, and that was it. I never saw him again. Yeah. So I, you know, did 20, 27 of those hours on my own. <laughs> right. Did you, um, I noticed that, um, you'd mentioned that you'd actually taken a nap. Mm-hmm. Was that part of the plan or were you planning on riding straight through? I was planning on riding straight through, um, But also again, thinking I wasn't even going to be out there for 24 hours. So it was as it, as it started to carry on a little longer than, than expected. Um, I stopped, uh, one of the last towns you hit is Paisley and uh, I took about a 15 minute nap there. Um, I, I think I set my alarm for 15 minutes. The reality was probably closed my eyes for 10, um, and took off. And I got about, you know, 45 minutes later out in the single track and I was feeling it again where I was going to nod off and, uh, I had to stop and take a, a 20 minute nap there. And, uh, at that point it was all, all a gamble. My phone had died and, uh, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I'd also lost it. Um, so I, I you know, I couldn't check on, see where anybody else was. And right. I knew, I knew at that point that, uh, Jason was not feeling well. Um, there was a, a, a guy out taking some pictures who, who really ate some information that he was, he was hurting a bit. And, uh, and I did see that Kevin had overtaken him and was making some time on me. Um, so it was just a calculated risk that if, you know, I could not nap and run into a tree or take a nap and, and, you know, feel refreshed and, and, uh, get on the gas if I need to. Right. And, uh, you gave up a bit of a, um, secret, uh, strategy of yours is that you slept <laughs> sideways on the trail so someone would have to that, walk yeah around you I, I, walk I over can't, you. can't say i i invented that technique um <laughs> so yeah I, i'm not sure if it occurred to many others but uh yeah so i blocked the trail so that the you'd, you'd either have to go off trail around me which would make enough noise to wake me up or or you know step over me which would probably wake me up also yeah <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, you know, I'd have to jump up and be ready to go and it'd be race on, but, yeah. uh, how, uh, uh that's... <laughs> how, how do you, how do you recover from these races? Um, as opposed to, um, obviously sleep is probably going to be the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, yes. <laughs> um, how, but do you force yourself to stay awake a little bit longer to make sure you get in, start resupplying calories or is your body just doesn't care at that point? Um, it's really dependent on how things go in the event of just, you know, how exhausted I am, um, afterwards and how highly caffeinated I am 
um, when the race finishes. Yeah. I was uh, heavily caffeinated at the end of this one, and it, it was um, it was probably about three hours before I went to sleep. Okay. Um, and it was that was just a short, quick nap. I actually uh, had dinner plans with my family, okay. <laughs> and the, the race took a little longer than I than I planned, and I didn't want to miss dinner with the family, so I just I took a short nap and ended up uh, in bed at about eight o'clock that night after dinner. Okay. Um, but yeah, typically I'd, I'd be asleep within a couple of hours. Um, but the first thing I need to do is, is put in a, you know, you know, five to 800 calories, uh, to, to get that healing process going as quickly as possible. Cause the, the biggest thing in those long races is just a breakdown of muscle. Right. And, and how do you, you got to stop you, that? How do you look at the recovery over the next four to five days before you're actually back to, you know, uh, as much sleep as possible. Um, and, uh, usually I, I'm eating ravenously. Um, so just trying to get in, you know, a lot of, a lot of protein and, and vegetables cause you don't, you know, you don't eat any fiber, any, any vegetable at all during those races. It's, you know, all super easily processed food. Right. Um, and so I can't, you know, I'm, I'm not getting a whole lot of, you know, vitamins and, and, and minerals outside of, uh, sports drinks. So it's, you know, just sort of reload all that stuff so your body can, can put it to work. Um, so, Um, uh, and and I'd say the recovery process goes on for two or three weeks afterwards. It's not, you know, five or, you know, four or five days I can get back on the bike and, um, and I may even feel good. Not usually not this early in the season, you know, later in the season I can, I can get off and, and I, and it did a short track race last year after, uh, trans North Georgia okay. and, uh, and finished uh, third or so. Um, but this, you know, at this time of year, I don't have that. The fit, fitness is not nearly as deep. So the recovery takes a little bit longer. Okay. Um, the, uh, you seem to be as you're moving, um, outside of the hundreds, do you still plan on doing those or are you kind of concentrating on the bike pack stuff? Um, no, I'm actually going to do a couple this year. I may, I may do Kahuta. Um, I haven't gotten an entry yet. Uh, so I'm still a little bit on undecided, uncommitted there. Um, but yeah, I'll do a couple this year and, uh, the bikepacking races are just so, so hard on the body right. and, uh, and the brain, um, to be honest, that, you know, I'm not very productive at work for a few, uh, days to a week after those things. Um, so I, I, Probably do um, a couple of more hundred milers this year, and, and even a few shorter races. Um, I'm no longer directly in the fool's gold, so I'd really like to to do that. Um, I haven't decided whether I'd do the hundred or the fifty yet. Um, and and one of the things with the the sponsors that I have is they're they're okay with my indecision right now. And, I, I am going to do, you know, five, six races for sure. But, uh, I, you know, it's not, uh, not like Topi Kurgan where I, they were asking in, in October what my race schedule is going to be for the next year. Right. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, with the, these bike pack races, um, do you, do you find that you kind of pick those out much earlier than you pick out anything else? Like those are certain races that, that you're going to kind of focus on? I mean, cause it seems like they're, they're far enough out there in advance that, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, you know, similar to doing 24 hour races where you need to know, I, I need to know about five months out, um, of what I'm going to be doing. Yeah. Just be, yeah. Cause my focus so far has been to go to them and, and just do them as fast as I can. And in order to do that, I've got to have that five months of, of prep, both physically and, and doing my homework of figuring out, you know, where to get the food and water, um, you know, what the course is going to be like and, and how to prepare for the, the challenges of that specific course, um, you know, whether it's climbing or sand or, or whatever. Um, you know, and, and the, you know, the navigation part of it, I spend a lot of time staring at maps and Google maps and Garmin base camp and, and really trying to get myself familiar with what's out there, both, uh, you know, for sort of the physical demands, you know, the climbing and, and, and descending and recovery parts, as well as, you know, where do I get water and where's my backup plan to my backup plan? And, you know, what, what parts am I going to be really remote? And I have to make sure that I am really dialed in for this, you know, 60 miles in the desert where there's no water at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no bailout point. Once you commit to that, you're, you're in it. Yeah. And I like to be really aware of what that sort of stuff just be, I mean, things can go wrong out there. They do go wrong. And, uh, and you've got to be prepared for them. These races are definitely not to be taken lightly. It's not like doing a 24 hour race when you decide things aren't going well. It's a, you know, maybe a three mile walk back to your pit and, uh, and it's all over, you know, you can get in the car and go home. You, you know, you might be, uh, pressing that emergency button on your spot tracker and, and, you know, the only way out of there is a helicopter. There's, there's not an easy way out. So I don't, I don't take that part of it lightly at all. Um, Um, I've noticed that, um, since you've kind of transitioned, to these, to the bike pack racing over the last two years, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. Though you've kind of been trans North Georgia seems to always be your, obviously it's your local ride. Do you have, being that you're doing the shorter of the bike pack races, the ones that are two, three days, mm-hmm. do you have, are, is this a transition to the longer ones or are you pretty comfortable? You just want to stay with these two, three day ones. And I, I've got ambitions at, at the tour divide. Okay. Um, it's been somewhat, you know, logistics and, uh, and, and financially, I mean, the tour divide is, a even at race, um, you know, at record pace, right. You're talking about a six month, I mean, six week, uh, six weeks, we're really not going to accomplish anything. The two weeks before the race, you're going to be so, you know, I'm so focused on the race and my gear and putting all that together and the logistics of getting there. And then there's two weeks of racing and then two weeks afterwards where your brain's mush and your body's useless. And, um, so, you know, that adds up to six weeks of time that I'm really not going to be making any money. And I'm just not, I haven't been at a point where I could do that yet or I haven't, I haven't had a, a, um, you know, some sort of amazing sponsorship that would take care of that for me. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the one thing. I mean, I would love to do the tour divide, but I, I don't know how I would, you know, take three weeks off from work. I don't know how that would work out. Yeah, you know, it's. <laughs> I love the guys uh, that do it, but I'm like, I don't know, I don't know how many, I don't, I don't know that that many people that could do that. Um, fitness wise, yeah, I can see it exactly. You, you never know psychologically or mentally how people work out, but I don't even, I don't, I don't know that many people that have the kind of occupations that 
they can just drop things for three or four weeks and be gone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and how someone like Matt Lee, you know, I think it was eight times or something yes, like that. Yeah. And, and, yeah, Matt Lee um, actually is <laughs> local to my area, and I see him riding all the time and stuff. And um, I guess he's just he just has that unique situation where. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I mean, so it's a goal for me to to get to get to that point that I can do that um, next year at best. But so, yeah, to, to more to your immediate question, uh, I've done the shorter ones. Um, really? Yeah. Somewhat out of, out of logistics and, um, and being able to apply uh, a, a unique ability to not have to sleep <laughs> yeah. to, uh, you know, to really change the, the way those races are taken on. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, that those, the no sleeping thing, it really just becomes more of a strategy for one or two days. It really doesn't become something that you can do, obviously, over the course of the route. Um, so Yeah, on something like Tour Divide, right. it, it would be detrimental um, to do that other than maybe the last couple of days. Right. Um, and and even at that point, I, I don't know if my body would, would deal with it well. Um, yeah. But... I know it's a strategy there. Um, I know Matt Lee, his strategy was always to ride for, you know, 24 to 30 hours straight off the, you know, right out of the gate, mm-hmm. get that little lead and then just try to hold, you know, just hold, hold it on. Just, yeah. Hold it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it could, it's definitely a strategy even in the shorter ones and it's, you know, how well can you execute your, your navigation and your, your nutrition, um, so that you don't, you know, you're not wasting time and you've got the energy to stay awake because that's the, the nutrition piece is, is huge in that ability to not have to sleep. Right. Um, you know, I, I tried it the first time I did TNGA and I, I failed spectacularly at it. I, I had such an epic bonk. <laughs> it cost me, cost me many hours to, to get myself out of that hole and, and trying to just push straight through. And, uh, and I, you know, at, as you said earlier, it's a learning experience every time you do one of these things. And, uh, so I, I kind of learned how to do that straight through with the trans North Georgia, just being able to repeat the same route, um, and really got a lot of confidence in it at uh, the stagecoach last year. Um, and I didn't set out to do that race without sleep. I, um, found my one, I lost my leg warmers, so I didn't want to try to sleep, um, at night and, and get cold. Um, so I, I decided I'd push on through and then I quickly realized that I was the time frame that I was planning to sleep on. I'm in downtown San Diego and that's not where you want to sleep because you'll wake up without a bike <laughs> or yeah, or mistaken for a homeless person, which right. would be easily done at that point. <laughs> and so I came, I came out the other side and I wasn't, wasn't really that tired. I didn't need it. So I just thought I'd push on until, until it hit me. And, um, and it just, you know, I, I took a 20 minute nap in that one, um, late in the race. Um, and it just never really hit me that I needed anything more than that. So it, it gave me a lot of confidence that I could, I could do that push close up to 40 hours without sleep. Um, you've recently, uh, handed over the reins of Fultz Gold. Mm-hmm. Um, was that, was it just time for you? I mean, I mean, you've you built that race into a national level race. I mean, um, probably, I mean, in the, in the Southeast, probably the biggest race, at least, especially on the endurance calendar. Um, mm-hmm. it, was it just kind of like you just 
you thought it'd run its course or? Uh, yeah, it was, well, the race itself has a lot of potential. Um, Mountain Goat Adventures has taken it over for me along with the Southern Cross. Right. Um, they, they, they took over both races and, um, they, I, I was looking at it, um, one, one, it's just exhausting. I mean, to be totally honest, it, it is way more exhausting than any of these ultra races I've ever done. Um, the, the work that goes into marking 50 miles of course and, and tearing it all back down when it's over and, and, you know, just orchestrating everything day of. Um, and so both, uh, Namrita and I were, were definitely getting, um, worn out from it and a little burnout on it. Um, but the other side of it was that if I wanted to continue the growth of the events and, and put them on at the level, um, or the, you know, to bring them up to the expectations that were there, uh, we kind of set ourselves up for, um, we needed to invest more in, in infrastructure. So, and that I either needed more races to justify the extra expenses or pass them on to someone who had those resources. You know, like a timing system's twenty five, thirty thousand dollars, right. and uh, to buy that for just two events is is a pretty big risk. You know, I would go back to not making any money on the events for a few years to do that, and it just wasn't wasn't worth the risk to me. I had someone who was interested in buying them that I knew could do a great job with it and and take it to a level beyond what I was able to do. So I'm pretty excited about it to be able to go back and race it and have fun with it. Um, which is why I wanted to create those events in the first place um, was there were events that, that uh, Namrita and I wanted to do. Um, so now we've got an opportunity to do them. So that's kind of cool. That is kind of cool. Um, uh, over um, you, one of the big things that um, you are known for, um, especially inside the community is, is that you are, have a big, thing of giving back, um, either through the events, um, that you've promoted in the past or, um, advocacy work, um, or, uh, you know, community, um, building projects. Um, you've recently become involved with the Georgia high school cycling league. Um, you're one of the founding mm-hmm. committee members run us through. I mean, there, we've heard of these, you know, the, the state high school, cycling, um, which is becoming a, a real big thing. Um, and it's cool that kids now, they don't have to go outside their high school sports calendars to find it. Um, tell us a little bit about it and, and where, where it's headed. Um, so I'm involved both with the, the league here in Georgia and then, um, the now the national, um, interscholastic cycling association, NICA, um, through with them through an honorary board and, and the honorary board's job is, you know, kind of disseminating information and, and connecting people, you know, using our networks to try to make it grow. And, um, so I got involved with that, uh, a little over a year ago and, uh, with NICA at the national level. And there is another, another guy who's now our league president, Dan Brooks, who is, um, sort of looking for something to, to get behind and, um, to, to make, you know, some sort of difference in the cycling world. And so we, we sat down and talked and, and, uh, you know, I said, I can't be the guy that drives the whole thing, but I can, you know, I, I can stand right next to you and, and introduce you to everybody and, and make it happen. And so 
it, it came about and it's really, really cool to see. So the whole high school, I mean, there, there's nothing not to like about it. I mean, getting, getting high school kids, um, racing mountain bikes is, is just really cool. They have a great time. Um, you know, it's healthy. It's, uh, it's a cool alternative from, from the team sports that they may not fit into. Um, and it helps create lifelong cyclists, which is, is fantastic. You know, it's typically the age group that where they put their bike down because it's a toy, um, and, and go off and do other things before they, they realize, uh, back in their, in their twenties again, that, Hey, wait a minute, that was actually a lot of fun. I want to go mountain biking again. Um, so, you know, keeping them on the bikes means you know, hopefully we have even more adults riding bikes too in the future. Yeah, agree. That's a, that's just a really cool thing. And plus it gives, I mean, it, I, I came up as a junior cyclist, but it seems like when the fall rolled around or spring rolled around, um, I was always trying to still be involved in high school sports. And so I ran, you know, cross country or swim, mm-hmm. swim team. I'm still doing the endurance stuff, but man, to have, have the ability to have raced for my high school in, you know, back in those days. I mean, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine I would have had a blast. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really, you know, and it's, really cool taking it from just being a fringe sport where I, I, I can only imagine, I mean, did you even have somebody else in your high school that, that raced bikes? Uh, maybe one. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's just, you don't have anybody else that you can relate to and, and having similar experiences with, and that's really important in that, that age. Um, and so creating that forum so that, you know, uh, racing bikes is not just this weird thing that you do, you know, that one kid does in school, uh, there's, you know, there's a program and there's, there's other kids involved and it's, it makes it a bit more normal, which is great. It should be there's nothing weird about it. <laughs> um, so yeah, things have really progressed here where, um, uh, our first races will be in the fall. Um, and we're, we're really hoping for a good turnout. Um, the way things are looking right now, we're, we're, we're thinking around 200 kids. Um, I, I don't want to, don't hold me to any numbers, but, uh, that's, um, it just seems pretty amazing to, to be able to come out of the gate like that. So I really hope we get that kind of, uh, showing at, at these races. Uh, we, we've got over a hundred coaches signed on, um, and, and we're starting the training program for all of that. Um, so there, there's a lot of work that gets, gets done in the background, you know, even before a race happens of, of getting coaches trained with, uh, you know, wilderness first aid and concussion and, getting background checks on, on all the coaches and, and then the training to how to teach the kids how to race and, and train. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. It's not, uh, it, it's a lot bigger and more complex than I expected, but at the same time, that's what's going to make it, uh, re- or really drive it and, and make parents, uh, feel comfortable with it. Yeah. And I, I really want to thank you for, um, I don't think like, like I was bringing up at the beginning of the interview, um, usually the people that make the biggest impact are also the most humble and the amount of impact that you've had in Southeast cycling, um, especially on the, um, off-road in the off-road community from promoting to, you know, the high school cycling league, um, to your involvement in uh, trail work and building trails and maintaining trails and, um, giving back, uh, you know, your business, um, and the, and the work you, you guys do there, uh, with coaching and fitting, um, it's really appreciated um, to have those tools, those resources, and and the people working in our community uh, like you. You guys, 
you guys are uh, amazing at what you do. Wow. Thank you. Um, I want to give you a chance uh, before we sign off. Um, who are your sponsors this year? Um, you mentioned Siren Bicycles. Yep, Siren. Um, they're they're building a, a frame for me uh, as we speak, and then uh, also uh, working with uh, or continuing to work with Chamois Butter. Um, you know, using the product, but also it, it, I collaborate a lot with those guys. Um, um, and chamois cream is is an area of, of great interest for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, American Classic uh, providing the wheels for me this year, and then um, uh, WN Precision and uh, and their bike fitting and and knowledge uh, there, as well as uh, of course my own business Five Five Nine Performance. Right. Um, and, uh, and honey stinger. Okay. Great. Well, thank you very much, Eddie, for, uh, coming on. Uh, once again, this is Eddie O'Day. Uh, my name is Mark Stover and, uh, thank you again, Eddie. It's been a All right. Thanks for having me, Mark. Take care. A great little interview there from Eddie O'Day. Uh, for those of you who would like to get in touch with Eddie, um, Eddie does do coaching, um, he has a cool little business there in 559. That's 55nine.com. You can contact him there or at eddieoday.com. Um, always will, he's always, he's a great guy. He's a great resource. He's, um, always willing to give out, um, some information and help you along. And certainly if you're looking for some coaching or, uh, fittings, that is the place to go, especially those of you who live here in the Southeast. Um, the Yak Attack. Took place earlier this month, of course, taking place over in Nepal in the Himalayas. Always an interesting race, without a doubt, uh, the highest stage race in the world. Um, competitors race to over 19,000 feet in elevation. This includes starting the race. The first few stages, first two or three stages are usually at only at about 1,000 uh, feet above sea level. Eight days. Competitors uh, not battling not just your normal stage race stuff and recovery um, that you normally would, but also dealing with foreign foods and ridiculous altitude gains and trails, really that weren't built for mountain bikes, but uh, certainly more for hiking or even for pack animals that travel those uh, those trails there. Um, this year, AJ Chetri of Nepal reclaimed the title that he's, he held in 2010, 2011, and 2012. Um, he attacked on stage two, which was the longest, and then just followed wheels um, through the majority of the other stages um, to conserve. Um, it's always interesting to see the Western riders um, versus the local riders, uh, with the Nepalese riders usually coming out on top, uh, probably has a lot to do with the significant amounts of altitude gain. However, this year, uh, Yuki Akita of Topik Ergon kept it honest throughout, pulling back minutes on the flatter stages before giving up small amounts of time on the climbing stages. Unfortunately, had a Big chunk of time lost on the seventh stage, which is the penultimate stage there, where the state uh, race went all the way up to 19,000 feet. AJ Chetrin wrapped it up on that stage, finishing nearly an hour ahead of all others, um, with uh, Akita coming in second. Going into the final stage, 
he actually scored a, another win on a 60-kilometer downhill race that went from the, uh, that penultimate climb um, back down into the valleys there, further building on that win with another five-minute buffer and ending up the race with about a one-hour uh, time difference between himself and Akita in second. Next slots were all Nepalese riders, um, Maharajan, Rai, and Shretha, uh, finishing in third, fourth, and fifth. Back here at home on the North American continent here in the U.S., we had the True Grit Epic, the first race of the Kenda NUE series, taking place in St. George's, Utah, across the southern Utah desert and the canyon lands there. We had Simran Chacon on, the race director for Grow Promotions on the last podcast, and she'd given us a great course preview and the expected challenging but fast conditions that she was expecting. The race didn't disappoint. Defending champ Alex Grant was off racing for Show Air Canada at one of the U.S. Cup events, and so the field that remained was wide open. Um, lots of talent showing up for the race, trying to get their feet wet in the endurance racing this season. Many of these many of these riders were racing this distance for the first time this season. Many East Coasters had made the trip out west to get in some warm weather riding in the week, week or so prior and then uh, attending the race. Uh, additionally, hoping to grab those early season NUE points and warm weather riding. Um, so, Lots of East Coasters there scattered among the uh, 350 or so starters. Um, on the start line, uh, notable racers included Jerry Fluke, obviously the multi-time NUE single speed champion there in the NUE event. Um, Drew Edsel uh, of the new Pros Closet Stands No Tubes team. Hub Bikes, Kerry Smith, Jonathan Davis of 9250, uh, Josh Testado, uh, Sonia Looney, multi-time defending champion Cheryl Sorensen of Rare Disease Cycling, um, Brenda Simrel of Motor Mile Racing. Huge number of, of experienced riders, top podium finishers there looking to compete in the, in the event this year. In the single-speed race, Jerry Flug modified a full suspension into a single speed for the healthy doses of rocky technical sections that he'd gained from having competed in this race in the past. Reports are that he used a 3420 for you gear weenies out there. Um, uh, took off straight from the gun um, with a strategy to start fast and see who came with him. He didn't have the benefit of using the geared open men that he sometimes employs um, as the open men had actually started several minutes in front of the other categories. Um, so he was actually actually had to um, start on his own. He gained a quick but small lead, uh, quickly gained a, a very small lead with A.J. Linnell and Trouble Rockwell chasing back on quickly. Um, Flug and Linnell then were then able to pull away together on some of the tougher technical features, and then Flug then gapped Linnell on a combo climb into a ridiculous headwind, which um, uh, was really kicking the riders around a bit, um, according to several, some of the race reports I've seen. Um, so... Linnell then missed a course marker, losing a few more minutes that the Fluganator was able to capitalize on and then maintain all the way to the finish of the 89-mile course. Linnell finished second, six minutes back, with Ernesto Marincin third, about 30 minutes further back. In the Women's Open, some things are as predictable as Flug being up front and winning the single speed. Cheryl Sorensen taking the women's win. Like the men's race, protagonist, 
emerged from the gun, and that was in the form of Sonia Looney, who blasted away from the start as if it was a traditional cross-country event. Um, Cheryl and two others chasing right behind her. Um, Cheryl was able to get back um, onto Sonia's wheel and then actually be able to pull away from Sonia on a loose, uh, scree, gravelly-type climb, put a small gap uh, by the time she reached the top. Cheryl finished in seven hours, 55 minutes, nearly 25 minutes up on Looney, who uh, fought through some mechanical issues in the latter parts of the race with some brakes, uh, brake issues. Uh, Brenda Simrel was third in nine hours, 13 minutes and change. Uh, in the men's open race, um, one heck of a battle. Um, according to all reports, Edsel and Kerry Smith took off early, forging an early lead in the opening miles um, as it hit the techie loose climbing. Um, Kerry Smith actually ended up developing about a two to three minute advantage over Edsel after Drew developed some top small tire leaks uh, that he was able to resolve with some additional air pressure and the magic of stand sealant. Uh, Edsel was able to Real Carrie Smith back in just after the halfway point before eking out a few seconds on different sections of the course uh, for the remainder and to take the win in six hours, 40 minutes, about three minutes up on Smith. Very close race. Um, lots of uh, back and forth and um, with many sections of the course showing them um, nearly dead even. Um, Smith was able to keep Edsel honest. Um, certainly, and probably a bit nervous in those final miles. Uh, Brent Pontius of Rooster's Biker Edge was in five minutes back, uh, also going under seven hours. Other notable finishes, Jonathan Davis pushing the pace in the final miles for just over seven hours and five minutes. Interesting um, report from the race course. Mr. 24 himself, Josh Sestato, had a very eventful day, to say the least. Santa Cruz rider had a... I guess what would be described as a big derailleur issue in the opening miles, forcing him to limp back to the start for repairs. He was able to get the bike repaired and then started the course nearly an hour down on the field and was able to still stamp up uh, and grab 24th place. Remarkable never-say-die to say, never say die attitude, um, certainly showcasing the mental fortitude of these top guys as well as uh, the endurance mentality and a heck of an example for the rest of us. In the men's Masters 50+, plus, um, starting off 2014, just as he finished 2013, series champ Marlon Whalen showed his Whaley, I'm sorry, Marlon Whaley showed off his early season form and just rolled away from the field. Um, this is really a redemption to last year um, where early mechanicals uh, arm injury and um, some course marker issues uh, ended his day early. He admittedly had issues on the technical sessions this year also, but had the fitness to pull away after those sections ended early in the course. Um, Todd Casson was second and David Johnson third, rolling in only 15 seconds apart um, for second and third. In the 50-mile race in the single speed, Alexander Smith um, taking the win in the open men's 50-mile uh, Bryson Perry of DNA Cycling taking the win there. And in the female 50-plus, uh, Kathy Sherwin of Stan's No Tubes taking the win there. Uh, one other notable story coming out of the race there at the True Grit, uh, named to remember in the coming years, Lex 
Avina. Remember that name, Lex Avina. In the 50-mile race, um, Lex finished third in the under-29 men's race, um, narrow miss, narrowly missing second by just one single second. The remarkable thing about Lex is that he is 15 years old. 15 years old, um, taking uh, second in, or I'm sorry, third in his age group in a 50-mile endurance race. Quite the remarkable achievement for that guy, and I am sure we will see his name in the in the future. Um, no doubt about it. Regarding the True Grit and uh, how that race all came to be and what it was like from the racer's perspective. Um, Mountain Bike Radio founder Ben Wellnack had a chance to sit down with Jonathan Davis um, regarding his fifth place win and the course conditions and the race itself. And so here's a little snippet of a interview that uh, Ben did with Jonathan Davis that will appear on a future uh, podcast on Inside Mountain Bike Radio. But here's a small snippet Take a listen to Jonathan on his perspective of the True Grit 2014 race. Uh, yeah, um, most people would say it's the most technically challenging of the entire NUE series. Um, I've done, I think, all but two NUE races in the series, uh, with exception now of the new one out, the Bear Creek out in California. I haven't done that one yet either, but I'm going to guess that one's going to be pretty fast and smooth, probably a lot of fire roads. Um, so yeah, very, very technically challenging, um, terrain, um, rocky route, um, desert. There's a section called Zen that's just, you know, amazing. People travel out to the, think mountain bike radio or mountain bike, uh, action possibly just did a review and they landed in like one of the top 10 destination spots for riding that St. George area because of the technical terrain. Um, so yeah, definitely tough, you know, tough early season. It's uh, it's hard for a lot of folks to get up and, and be ready to race 100 miles at race pace in March. Um, so I think that definitely adds to the challenge of the race. Yeah, well, absolutely. Like I, I was reading something, I think it was A.J. Linnell. Um, he's up from Idaho area, like the Tetons area. So it's all snow. And I was reading, right. he posted a blog saying how he did all skiing to get ready. And basically he's just going out there kind of for the first big ride. Yeah, I know Kerry Smith's in the same position. Um, I know Toast, Josh Sestata was in the same, yeah. the same boat. He's been doing tons and tons of backcountry skiing and he had said he'd gotten on the bike about a month before the race <laughs> and started, you know, yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to kind of open himself back up. Um, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, goes down into all of the, the layers of the field. Um, where, you know, 100, even the 50 mile race out there being as technically challenging as is, is, uh, is a real, it's a real effort for sure. It's still good. It's good to get out in the warm sun though, too. Like you oh, know, Jerry Flug and Trevor Rockwell from Iowa, they were, the East coasters were out there too. So yeah, I, I've, I've done the true grade every year that it's existed. So the first year was in its 50 mile, uh, format. And then the next three years, um, they had a hundred. So this was my fourth year doing it. And it's, it's, it's a staple race for me, one I never miss. It hardly ever conflicts with other races, which tends to be a challenge for us. And especially in the Colorado market, there's just so many options for racing once the season kicks in. Um, and there's not a whole lot going on in March. So to be able to escape and ride trails that good, if it were closer, I would go to, to St. George area to ride uh, weekly. Um, it's yeah. right up there with Moab and Fruta, you know, yeah. all day long, to be honest. I think in, in some ways it's even better than Moab and Fruta. Um, where you can really get out there and, and put some distance in. You can spend some time on the bike, um, really cranking out the miles in, in that St. George area. Occurring the same weekend as the True Grit Epic, um, a big race on the 
bike pack racing calendar, the Stagecoach 400 rolled out, um, rolling out in California. The Stagecoach 400 was run under very good conditions. Guy Sutton, a favorite going into the race, took off in the early miles, and by the time the race reached Borrego Springs, very early on to the race, actually one of the first checkpoints, already had 30 minutes on after just four hours of racing. Continued to pull away despite despite a large group chasing behind him um, that included uh, Brian Taylor, Blake Bacchius, Eric Lord, Justin Taylor, John Taft, uh, Patrick Gunnarsson. Um, that chase group fell apart after Borrego Springs with uh, occasional two- or three-person regrouping at refuel and hydration points. First across the line, Guy Sutton in one day, 19 hours, four minutes, using little to no sleep during the course. Uh, Brian Taylor was next in nearly five hours later, despite, um, at least according to the spot trackers, of bringing the deficit down to Guy Sutton to just under one hour with only 50 miles remaining. Um, It would appear that maybe something happened on the course and either uh, Brian Taylor stopped for sleep um, or there was some type of mechanical involvement. Eric Lord, third, about six hours after Guy Sutton's finish. A few days, I actually got a chance to connect with uh, Brendan Collier um, from the Hub Cyclery. Um, who has long been the driving force um, and the overseer of this route. Um, A chance to discuss the route itself, this year's Stagecoach 400, and what the future may hold. Uh, I'm talking with Brendan Collier of Hub Cyclery out in Idlewild, California. Um, If you're not familiar with Brendan, um, he's been involved in the bike pack community for quite a while, and his event, the Stagecoach 400, just ran... um, not too long ago, about a week and a half ago. And so uh, what we're going to talk to Brendan about is how that event went. And um, I'd like to welcome, at this point, Brendan. Uh, glad hey, to have you thanks on thanks for having me. Yeah, Thank uh, you. Good to be here. Great. Um, so, Brendan, how did you uh, – the Stagecoach 400 is um, a rather unique event. Um, most people know it because they see the pictures of it going down through the desert and through the canyons and um, out, you know, out – and, and the tales of, you know, scavenging for water sources and um, <laughs> food sources and stuff. But the interesting parts that I didn't realize um, until I actually talked to a few people who had done it was that this race goes down through the mountains, down across the desert, and then actually goes through the middle of San Diego and right then back it. out, right through the middle of San Diego. So yeah. not your typical bikepacking adventure, um, what you would normally think of. How did you ever come up with the the route, and what brought you to come up with a route to actually organize a race around it? Sure. Well, um, you know, it was it was literally just going on my own bike packs with uh, what I have to ride here, and um, I'd, I'd say that that bike packing to me, um, I've lived in Southern California now nine years, and um, I've really fallen in love with the area, and I think bike packing has has been a lot of that reason, you know, it's, it's exposed me to these different areas of, of the desert and the close proximity then of the the mountains and the ocean. And, um, I just started piecing stuff together from rides that my buddies and I have done and and what Mary was doing and, uh, put it together into a a cohesive loop. Right. Um, was it something, and and you know what else I, I actually just, uh, I needed a I needed a, an event of my own that uh, that I could go to without having to take as much time off. So uh, <laughs> there were some selfish reasons for it too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you guys kind of 
um, kind of evolved. I mean, your your the, your shop, Hub Cyclery, um, is as is well known not only as being the kind of the headquarters of the stagecoach, but also um, being very supportive to the bike packing community, um, a go to place for equipment and um, and ideas and things like that. Um, sure. You mentioned Mary. Now, who is Mary? Uh, Mary Metcalf Collier, my, my bride, right. uh, she, uh, she raced the tour divide in, in 2008. Right. Um, she is the girl in the film, ride the divide. Right. Of and, course. uh, and, uh, yeah, she's, she's been a big part of this route as well. Um, some of the, uh, some of the mountain sections we have on the tail end of the route, like the last probably, uh, 70 miles or so are, uh, or of her design, um, that she used, uh, when she was preparing for the tour divide. Okay. And explain the route. Um, it goes from Idlewild. It kind of does a big lollipop type thing. But what kind of terrain do you encounter over the course of your route? Um, well, you, you'll what is it they say? Uh, if you don't like the terrain, just you know keep pedaling another ten miles or so, and it'll change. So uh, we start out. Uh, we, we drop out of the mountain rather quickly, uh, pretty abruptly, uh, down Coyote Canyon, which is a, a very rocky. Uh, not heavily trafficked canyon at all. There, there's an eight mile stretch in the middle, uh, where it's, it's pretty much route finding through, uh, through a canyon bottom. Um, then we, we go out into the, to the open desert, um, uh, the Anza Borrego desert, um, cross that. It's very sandy, uh, very open, lots of sun, not a lot of water, not a lot of food. And then we climb into the lagunas. We cross the Cuyamacas and make our way out to the San Diego Bay. Uh, by that time we're riding, um, pretty legit dirt, single track, um, some fire roads. Uh, we, we enter the city on, on paved bike paths. Uh, and I, I want to say there's about 30 miles of pavement right through the heart of the city, like right past the airport, right on the bay. Um, you know, all, all this, uh, totally different, uh, totally different set of challenges in, in the city. You know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's taxi cabs, there's, you, you might hit traffic. There's, there's all these things to consider. Um, then we turn inland again after Torrey Pines, uh, state beach, and we ride, uh, single track for quite a ways. Uh, we, we're, we're back on dirt. Um, and it kind of transitions from this suburban single track into, uh, kind of a, uh, uh, what's the word? Like an ag area. There's a lot of ranching, um, some farming. And then we start climbing back into the mountains. Um, and it gets very remote, um, just before we get to Idlewild, there, there's a long, there's a long stretch without uh, much food to speak of, and, and only a couple water sources in the last maybe 80 miles. Wow, a little bit of everything. Yeah, a little bit of everything. Um, it's funny. I was talking to Eddie O'Day, um, and he he had mentioned um, worrying about sleeping and how the sleep monster had almost hit him right in San Diego. And of course, he knew he wasn't going to lay down anywhere in San Diego and wake up sure. on a bike or be mistaken for a homeless person he'd said so um, it's uh it's one of the more stressful parts of the route uh you know in a totally different way than than what what the desert might bring to you right yeah um so this year um did you act did you complete the route also you know what i didn't and uh that is a a, a real point for me um i have yet to finish my route under race conditions uh, this okay. is the second year in a row that I got sick from my uh, from a, something my my four year old had okay. the the week before, so I I still need to uh, I still need to bust that out. Okay. Um, and how did the race go down this year? 
Um, you, you had quite a few people show up. Um, yep. was, was the outcome what you expected? Like, were there favorites? Or is this one of those races that every year anything can happen? There were definitely some favorites. And, and that said, I'll say this is the best year yet. It was um, we seem to get about 40, 45 people uh, every year for, for three years now. Um, and, and so I, I guess I, I kind of expect that. Uh, that said, I, I, I'm actually expecting even more next year after th- this year was such a success. Um, it was very well liked. We had a, we had a really good vibe, uh, from the, from the participants this year. Um, as far as favorites go, um, there were probably a good, a good, you know, maybe four or five, uh, guys, um, all Southern California based who had been eyeing it for a while. Um, Guy Sutton is um, not only uh, an outstanding racer and an outstanding person, um, he also knows the route very well and, and helped design some of the city sections of it. Um, so he he was definitely uh, somebody to watch. Um, Brian Taylor, um, as he ended up, I want to say, yeah, he was second place. Eric Lord, um, Blake, these were all guys that that all were were definitely in contention to uh, to take the win. Okay. And, and they, and they had a race. Yeah. There, there was, there was definitely okay. a race at the front. Those, uh, those top three guys, they had, uh, kind of the, uh, the Phil Wiggett elastic going on. Uh, <laughs> they, they'd get close to one another and then they'd just pull away and then get close again. It was, it was really interesting to watch. Did you see, um, any, uh, strategies play out, uh, as far as sleep or, you know? Well, Guy has a, uh, as I understand it, Guy did not sleep. Um, and that wasn't necessarily his, uh, intention going out, which, which I, I find very interesting to hear. Um, he stopped several times, um, uh, with a roof over his head, even, or, or the opportunity to have a roof over his head, um, and sat down, as I understand it, wanting sleep and, and it didn't come to him. So he only stayed, you know, for, for a minimal amount of time, refreshed himself and then, and then got rolling again. Um, these, as I'm, I'm hearing some people refer to these, this length of race as a quote unquote middle distance race. Um, the ability to go without sleep is, is really, um, playing out as, as a, a key factor. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it really, it, it, it does seem that the, um, there is that length of the race, um, that seems to be actually probably actually where, a lot of the, I think a lot of the, um, talk about bike packing goes and people are willing to try these events is that, you know, you can do them over a weekend. Um, yeah, sure. they're going to hurt you. And yeah, there's going to be a lot of recovery and stuff like that. But, um, the sleep becomes, you know, you don't have to take long periods of time off work. But that, that said, um, they're, they sleep strategies become a, a much bigger thing. And then on top of that, you're also not looking at just pure endurance, but there's, like especially the guys at the front, there's going to be speed involved. Um, speed so. and uh, less gear to carry too. Right. Um, right. The guys who are who are going out, not really planning to sleep, have the benefit of of not carrying a sleep system, and and that's that's significant weight. Yes. Yeah. Um, so so who ended up winning it? Guy Sutton. Guy so, Sutton. Yep. And what was the uh, time for 400 miles? Oh, let's see. He uh, he came in at, at 105 in the morning on day two. So uh, let's see, we left at six. I'd, I'd have to calculate right. that. He's he's not quite on uh, as on like what Eddie O'Day's pace was, um, but still pretty darn fast and yeah, still looking respectable. at 40, 41 hours ish. So yep, that's uh, that's yep. pretty pretty darn impressive. Darn impressive. Where do you see uh, Stagecoach going from here? 
Um, well, the route, um, I, I kind of think of the Stagecoach 400 in, in both in terms of a route and as well as the event. Um, the route will continue to improve. Right now, as you know, it's shaped like a lollipop. Um, there's some, uh, some area in, in the mountains near us that I'm working on right now to, to make that into a full loop. Um, there's maybe something else that I'm going to be changing in the city. Um, that's just in, in hopes to always make it as the, the best route that it can be. Um, as the race goes, um, I've had some re- component. Um, the potential advantage for some with a stage race, self-supported stage race, would be um, it could really add a nice uh, social aspect in some some pretty cool places. You know, if we had a stop at the hot springs and a stop at the beach and stop at the, the Alpine Brewery, that kind of stuff, um, that may come. Um, okay. But we'll see. Uh, uh, we, we shall see. <laughs> okay. So possible stage race in the future. Maybe, maybe, kind of, yeah. Maybe, maybe, kind of, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be noncommittal on that for now, but, but the improvements to the route are definitely happening. Um, and, and like I said earlier, the, this was, um, the vibe was, was outstanding this year. Um, we, we made a change to the desert, uh, for, for 2014, um, that is here to stay so that the desert isn't quite as arduous as it has been in years past. Um, and it also affords us a new, prime resupply spot at a hot spring. So uh, in my case, I, I, I had the, the, the hot spring as, as my carrot for the end of my first day. That was at mile 110. Um, and I, I got to that hot spring and soaked in it, and it, it really added a, a nice vibe for me to uh, to carry on afterward. Right. Well, Brendan, I'd like to thank you um, for a couple things. First, love you. Thank you for coming on for um, to getting on the show here, um, getting uh, your viewpoint um, especially from a race promoter perspective or the route, you know, the, building the route and bringing it up. But I'd also like to thank you also for building this route um, and supporting these cool bike packing events. I mean, nothing's more grassroots than this, and it's just a great, great, great thing. Um, right like on. Thank, thank you again. Yep. Appreciate it. So once again, this has uh, been Brendan Collier from Hub Cyclery, uh, kind of the route planner, race director, whatever you want to call it, of the Stagecoach 400. <laughs> Thank you again for being on, Brendan. Cool. You're welcome. Thank you. Under great leadership, really looking forward to what the Stagecoach 400 and the future there holds. Um, looking really forward to following that race as it develops even further in the future years. Um, a quick mention of a new race here in the southeast. Um, races along the North Carolina-Tennessee border. Um, the Hartford 50 occurred uh the last Sunday here. Um, this is the inaugural year. Um, the, the Hartford 50 is a brainchild of 35 North race productions. Um, and recently, I mean, until recently I, I hadn't even come across, uh, um, my plate as far as even, even noticing it for registration. Um, we here at the last aid station don't usually talk about 50 mile gravel races. Uh, honestly, 50-mile gravel races seems almost like child play uh, when stacked up against the usual affair we cover here, the 100s, the 12s, the 24s, the multi-day bike bike pack racing. Um, but I think the Hartford is the exception in my mind, um, and I think you'll agree. Uh, any 53-mile race with 7,500 feet of climbing um, that takes the men's open winner four hours to complete, 
In my mind, that qualifies. And when you figure, think about those average speeds there, you know, 13 miles an hour for um, uh, uh, a gravel race, wow. Um, horrendous conditions this year. Um, this year, race time arrived with uh, rain having been pelting the course for nearly two hours prior, temperatures dropping. They were in the low 40s at race start, um, expected to drop even further. After a short neutral rollout um, right off the gun, uh, the group hit the first early section of gravel and Ben Wygan pushed the pace early, causing an early separation and a small group of six that got away. That included MTB powerhouse Gordon Wadsworth, John Stang, and Chris Brown. As the early climbs whittled the group down, um, some of these climbs approaching 20%, the group came apart completely with only Wygan and Wadsworth riding off together. As the leaders hit the penultimate climb at Max Patch, uh, Max Patch being an eight-mile climb, uh, Wadsworth found an extra gear. And on the nearly eight-mile climb, crested the top nearly six minutes in front of Wygan. Uh, John Stang was able to chase down Wygan across the top and on the descent. Uh, final standings, Wadsworth first, Stang second, Wygan third, and Adam Penny fourth. On the women's side of the field, Carrie Lowry finishing 10th overall and as the top female in four hours, 28 minutes with Emily Harefield in second and Laura Jones in third. In regards to races that are underway now, uh, the ABSA Cape Epic in South Africa, one of the biggest, if not the biggest mountain bike stage races in the world um, is going on right now where you'll see many World Cup pros attending, testing their early season fitness long before the World Cup events really get underway, um, testing their form. Um, its unique format plays really well. Um, it has a format. It is a duo team event. Um, so often you see um, uh, numerous World Cup pros teaming up um, under different sponsors that you would normally see. Um, often... Uh, these teams do employ tactics. Uh, the unique duo team event, um, though, does does create large packs. Um, the requirement of the duo is that they are always within two minutes of, of each other. They have to stay within two minutes of each other no matter where on the course. So if, for example, one person has a mechanical, the other is required to stop um, and assist. Um, additionally, when they finish, they have to finish within two minutes of each other. Ends up being quite a teamwork type thing, um, and there, as there are, there are different tactics that you would normally see in us in your standard uh, World Cup mountain bike race. Most of the races here, with the exception of the prologue, are on the definitely on the much longer side of things. Most of the races, most of the uh, course, um, run around eighty to one hundred and thirty kilometers. So we're looking at some significant dif- uh, distances over the seven days with the only exception being, of course, the prologue at 23 kilometers. Uh, the 23-kilometer prologue got off on Sunday morning under uh, decent weather. Uh, Jose Hermida and Houts of uh, Multivan Merida um, won the prologue 12 seconds over Flickinger and Farger of BMC um, and about a minute and 20 above Henin and Menin, I'm sorry, Menin and Heineck of Topik Ergon. On the women's side, Kleinemann Longved of RECM, two minutes ahead of Suss and Bigham, and five minutes ahead of Steinberg and Rolf. Um, very 
uh, technical course, quite a few crashes, quite a few mechanicals on that course. Um, though there were some points where the, even uh, the favorites were separated by three or four minutes due to some incidents on course, overall that those uh, time differences are really not going to make a huge difference as many of the courses later on in the event um, when they are approaching 120, 130 kilometer distances are often won by um, tens of minutes and not the little um, 12 seconds or 20 seconds or so um, that you see the differences in the prologue. Stage one came early, the race starting at 7 a.m. on uh, Monday for 113 kilometers and about 2,500 meters of climbing. Uh, Marcus Kaufman and Joachim Case of the team Centuria Vod survived the brutal 113-kilometer opening stage and included several trips up and over the ridge lines in the Western Cape um, on some very, very nasty, rugged terrain um, that had most of the teams dealing with punctures and mechanical problems. Um, so their team came in solo with about a two to two and a half minute lead on a chasing group of 10. So five teams all chasing them down um, and coming in uh, right uh, right, right behind them um, with uh, those other five teams all getting the same time. The biggest setback of the day was Hermita and Hotsier early leaders um, with Hermita having GI issues overnight uh, that continued during the race. Um, dropping them well down the standings. Um, on the women's side, Longvad, uh, the team of Longvad and uh, Kleinham of RECM had a disastrous day, falling 25 minutes down. Stage win by Bingham and Sus of Mirandal moved them up into the GC lead uh, with a five hour, 25 minute win, followed by Cape Brewing's um, Stein. Steinerhog and Ralph, um, who then also moved into second overall. So if the racers thought stage one had been bad, stage two proved far worse. Um, due to the torrential rains overnight, race conditions were described as 100 kilometers of pudding. Heavy downpours overnight further discouraged the men in the opening miles um, as the rains continued uh, during the first half of the race. Robert Menon, who was the uh, race winner with partner Heineck of Topeak Ergon related. He was as much the winner as he was simply the fastest survivor in a time of four hours, 12 minutes. Four-time Cape Epic winner Carl Platt and partner Urs Huber overcame an early crash to finish second and grabbed the leader's jersey. Platt, Platt's nearest rival, Christoph Saucer, also attempting to win for the fifth time at the Cape Epic uh, lost 12 minutes with partner Rabon after a brake failure during the closing miles of the race. Biggest losers for the, were for the race were race leaders Kaufman and Case. Um, after breaking a frame um, and remarkably repairing it trailside with inner tubes and cable ties, eventually finishing nearly two hours down. Flukinger and Farger of BMC remained in the hunt in fifth overall. On the women's race, Kleinhaus and Longvad pulled back nine of the minutes they lost of the 24 in stage one um, to race leaders Bingham and Seuss by winning the stage. Cape Brewing's Steinhog and Ralph stayed consistent, remaining only 19 seconds down. So uh, quite a bit of uh, 
back and forth among the teams, but the leaders and the favorites are definitely showing um, consistency at the top of the leaderboards with the biggest impact being um, mechanicals and uh, frame failures uh, during the race. A couple upcoming races here to mention as we begin to wrap up the last aid station podcast here for this week. Uh, the Austin Rattler 100K in Austin, Texas, just east of Austin, Texas, celebrates its third year this year on the calendar. It, of course, is a qualifier for the Leadville 100, part of that Leadville Lifetime Series. Um, gently rolling, usually a dusty, dry course on a 15-mile loop. Uh, racers complete four loops there. Um, about 50% fire roads, 50% single track. Um, it'll always be interesting to see who's uh, targeting that series um, and who's coming out to uh, really push for that style of racing and who's going for the who's looking to qualify for Leadville. Um, the first weekend in April big, uh, really, really starts the race series. If you look at some of the calendars around, including those on Mountain Bike Radio, lots of races are filling up those early weeks. Uh, one here in my backyard, the Six Hours of Warrior Creek, is a crazy popular event. Um, the event uh, sold out all 300 or so entries in under 10 minutes way back in December, almost like a rock concert style um, entry uh, lottery kind of thing. Um, this is the uh, go-to race here in the southeast for that really signals the uh, beginning of the endurance season and that's not the slight um, events that have come before it but traditionally that's the first very well attended race Um, it's uh, set up very 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 well promoted very very well Uh, the train there is like a mountain biker's paradise Uh, imba epic uh, trail status there that circulates in and around a campground that only race participants in that race weekend can stay at huge berms crazy flowy trails keep the speed high the fun factor higher and also employing a moderate amount of elevation change to make sure you remember that it is indeed a mountain bike race. Um, so those are the big races coming up. One other one to mention um, just as we uh, start to close down here. Um, on April 6th, the Dragon's Tail in the Shenandoah Blue Ridge area. It's a race that's been around for quite a while. Several different forms kind of went away for a little bit and came back. It is a very um, historic race as far as endurance mountain biking goes here in in the Mid-Atlantic or the uh, Southeast. Um, Quite a few people, um, notable names, have raced that race, um, including Jeremiah Bishop, Keck Baker, uh, David Wood, Thomas Turner, Sam Kerber, Sue Haywood, uh, Cheryl Sorensen, even going Floyd Landis, Chris Etoff, uh, Jeff Schalk, Matthew Lee. So quite a few of the who's who in the endurance mountain biking world. A lot of them have left their blood, sweat, and tears out on those uh, rugged rugged trails there. Not sure who will be there this year. Um, as there are no large series events in the NUE schedule, I bet that you'll see um, quite a few East Coast and Southeast endurance Riders making the start. There's no U.S. Cup event that weekend, so perhaps an appearance by some of the uh, the traditional XC guys um, is possible, especially considering that race is only uh, a 40 mile race. Um, I think is very, very, very likely there. One other big race to mention um, out there in the foothills of Denver, color outside of Denver, Colorado. Um, uh, out in actually Monument, Colorado, uh, 
is the 168-mile Anti-Epic. Um, it's a self-supported ride um, started by Mountain Bike Radio founder Ben Wellnack. Not mentioning it because this is Mountain Bike Radio, but I'm mentioning it because this rate this ride has really established itself as a um, go-to race, go-to event, building a heck of a reputation among those looking for ultra-distance gravel races, um, looking for the some of those preparing for Tour Divide, some of those looking more towards the uh, Dirty Kansas-style um, rides. Um, lots of people prepare for that type of riding um, at this event. Always a good event that can sometimes be made more horrendous by weather conditions. Um, looking across the confirmed start list online, some notable names jump out, like uh, former winner Jonathan Davis, 92.50, who we had on earlier, um, and his teammate Kyle Taylor, all making the start there in uh, Monument for the Anti-Epic on April 5th. Um, again, I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in to the last aid station here on Mountain Bike Radio. My name is Mark Stover. Please keep in contact with us. Um, do so, do so um, at my email address at mark at mountainbikeradio.com. Through uh, mountainbikeradio.com's website, there's uh, places there for comments and stuff. We have a Facebook page. Uh, uh, search for us on the last aid station. Occasionally we get some um, some stuff through there. And thank you for uh, the support. Thank you for uh, continuing to keep me posted on rides and races in your area. And uh, looking forward to seeing you on the trails real soon. Once again, my name is Mark Stover, and this has been The Last Aid Station.